0: Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. This morning we're actually beginning the text of the Gospel of John. Those first two messages we've done have been an introduction. We looked at the authorship, and I tried to demonstrate, at least the best I could, that it was Lazarus, John Eleazar, who was a disciple that Yeshua loved. And as the disciple who Yeshua loved, he was the one who wrote the book. As I said, John Eliezer was a priest. He was a Hebrew. The Hebrew name Eliezer is pronounced Elazar, which means El has helped. Elazar, El has helped. God has helped. Now, as a Hebrew, I believe that he wrote the gospel in Hebrew. Now, I know that's controversial today, but let me say this, and I, and I mentioned this last week. Even if he did not write the original, the first gospel in Hebrew, it was born out of the Hebrew mind. As it was passed along, it was Hebrew. It was Hebrew thought processes, Hebrew imagery, everything was Hebrew. When it got put down, it might have been Greek, but it's Hebrew thought. Margaret Barker, commenting on John's prologue, writes this. The first three lines suggest a Hebrew pattern of thought, even if they are not originally written in Hebrew. Sentences beginning, and, and... Are normally Hebrew style. The difficult Greek is trying to express something alien to Greek thought. I think that's so true. You know, there, she's trying to express things. When you put it in Greek, you just don't understand it. We'll look at that in a second. Just one of the words here. John's purpose in writing this gospel is clear. Not saying he didn't have side purposes, but this was his main purpose. These things have been written. So that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through His name. So he's writing so we would believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in believing that we'd have life. Now we said this gospel was most likely written around 60 to 68 AD. I said it had to have been written before AD 70, because in John's gospel, the temple receives more attention than any other New Testament book. And he doesn't say anything about destruction now for a hebrew this was a major event their city was destroyed their temple was razzed to the ground the priesthood was wiped out they were slaughtered from that time on there was no sacrifices there was no judaism and then he writes a book about it later and never mentions it i think that's really kind of crazy almost all right so we begin this morning to look at the actual text and we're not going to look at much of the text okay <laughs> But we're going to actually start into it, all right? We want to begin this prologue. All right, the first 18 verses in this gospel are the prologue, and the prologue contains practically all the central ideas contained in the gospel itself. Carson writes this, The prologue summarizes how the Word, which was God in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time, history, tangibility. In other words, how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history, so that the glory and the grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book is nothing other than an expansion of this theme. So basically what he's saying is everything's in the prologue, and then the rest of the book is expanding on what he lays out in the prologue. So it'll take us some time to get through these first 18 verses, but when we do, the rest will just fly right through, all right? After the prologue, after the first 18 verses, verse 19 to almost the end of chapter 12, talk about the public ministry of Yeshua. And that's where the focus is on. And then in chapter 13 through 17, the focus is on the last few hours that Yeshua spends with His disciples. Chapters 18 and 19 deal with the crucifixion. Chapter 20 and 21, the resurrection and the resurrection appearances. Now, This is different from the other Gospels. You see that as soon as you begin to read. Mark begins his story of the Lord Yeshua at the River Jordan. Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels with the Lord Yeshua in Bethlehem. But Eleazar goes back to the very beginning of all things. Even beyond history as if to say, there's only one true perspective in which to see the story of Yeshua of Nazareth. And that is, you must look at it in the light of eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All right, this is what we're going to go through this morning, the yellow part, okay? In the beginning was the Word. You know, often I get emails from people, you know, questioning the Trinity, questioning the deity of Christ. Well, have you ever looked into this? People, these verses so clearly lay out the deity of Christ, all right? Lay out who he is. He was in the beginning. All right. Any first century reader of this verse would have noticed an illusion Ill- an in the opening words to the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the literal translation, the definite article is not here in either one of these texts. It's in beginning in both texts. All right. Now, the Greek words that begin the fourth gospel are literally in beginning or in the Greek, enarche, while the first Hebrew words in the book of Genesis are in beginning or bereshit in Hebrew. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, has enarche here. Same thing. So, the Hebrew, the Greek, these are identical, enarche, bereshit. Now, I don't see it as a coincidence. That both Genesis and John open with these exact same words. You know, in Genesis it records the creation. And in the prologue of the fourth gospel, with the same exact phrase, he introduces in the beginning, and we have that same exact imagery. But it's not just that. If you look at the first five verses of each of them, we see the same imagery there. They talk about life. They talk about light. They talk about darkness. I think John is writing about a new beginning, a new creation, and he uses the words to recall the first creation. In the beginning was the Word. That is when God created the heavens and the earth, the Word already was. In other words, the Word already existed when the heavens and the earth were created. He doesn't say, in the beginning the Word became, or came into existence, or came to be. In fact, he uses the Greek verb amy, which means to be, it means to exist. Now, later on in this very section, he's going to use the verb genomai, which means to come to be or to enter into existence, but he does not use that verb when he's talking about the word. For example, in verse three, he'll say all things came into being Ginomai. Then in verse 6, there came Ginomai, a man sent from God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh. It was not always flesh. It became flesh at a point in time. There was a time, Genemai when Yeshua took on an additional nature. To enter in, to existence. That's to become, to start something new. But in verse 1, He uses a form of the verb, Amy, that suggests continued Existence. I think we got the deity Christ right there, okay? So in the beginning was the Word. Now we often refer to this pre creation time as eternity past. This is the time that John referred to here. At the beginning, as far back as you can go, don't think too much about it. It'll really, you know, because we all had a beginning, so we can't fathom no beginning. But at the beginning, when there was nothing else, the Word existed. Nothing else was there. Back how far ever you want to go. Okay? Now he says, in the beginning was the Word. And I really want to focus and camp on this the rest of our time today. Because you got to understand who this Word is. And when you understand that, the rest of this makes a lot of sense. This is the most significant word in the prologue. It's a title for Yeshua. Yeshua is the Word. Now, the Greek word used for word here is logos, from which we get our word logic, logo, related words like that. But if you were to take a Greek dictionary and look up logos and get the definition, it wouldn't even begin to touch on what John's talking about here, because he didn't write it in Greek. So what does John mean by the term word using these opening verses? Well, obviously, the word is someone or something very significant. Now, outside of biblical use, if we see word... It means a unit of language, something necessary to communicate verbally and in print. And in biblical use, Christians, we often think of the word as being the Bible. That's the word. So we read that in the Scripture and we think, oh, he's talking about the Bible. No, he's not saying in the beginning it was the Bible, okay? That's not what he's saying here. But here's the thing. When a Greek heard the term logos, he thought of the philosophical discussions common in his day that expanded and explained the order of the world. See, the Greeks recognize order, all right, in the world. But since they didn't believe in one God created everything, they believed a whole bunch of gods created things. So they struggled to understand out how all, all these gods were involved in creation. And yet there's this beautiful order. It's not chaotic. But see... In the Greek view, they had a pantheon, but in their pantheon, the deities were all fighting each other, bickering and arguing and trying to take over all the time. But they saw this and they understood the intricacies of the heavens and the details of the earth, and they recognized that everything was perfectly balanced. And so they had to attribute this orderly creation to someone. And that being or that force, as they used to say, was the Logos. Now, he had no personality, so he was not really a god. In the, in the Greek mind, the Logos wasn't a god. It was a power, it was a rationale, a force that caused order in the creation. Now, understanding the Greek word Logos, do you think Elazar would have called Yeshua the Logos? Is he a force that orders and guides? Morris writes this. The Greek... In Greek thought, the Logos was perceived to be the always-existent, rational, stabilizing principle of the universe. Creative energy, the ultimate reality, the eternal reason, the supreme principle of the universe, the force that originated and permeated and directed all things. So, a force. Philo of Alexandria, writing at the time of Yeshua, described the Logos this way. He says, Logos was the tiller, with which God, the pilot of the universe, steers all things. See, now a Hebrew would have had a very different idea of the word. Intertestamental Judaism, and especially the Targums, the Targums were paraphrases of the Tanakh from the Hebrew language into the Aramaic language. Alright, so you hear Targum, that's the Aramaic. They used the expression, word of God, as a, circumlocution for the name of God. Now, because of their extreme reverence for the name of God, they avoided pronouncing it, and when use substitutions instead, and, and they say things like heaven, or they say things like the Word of God. This meant the phrase Word of God did not mean Scripture for the Jews. As it does for us. It, they, didn't, they didn't think of it that way. Okay, It was a reference to God Himself. So I see John as using the Hebraic sense here of word. And when you go back in the Tanakh and you read about the word, there are several things that are associated with the term word. In the first place, we see the word was associated with God's creative power. It was God's action that was associated with the word. Now, what I want to do is i want to run through a lot of verses in the Tanakh just to show you some things. I want to show you the word. All through the Tanakh that you might not have seen before, but maybe you'll catch some ideas. So we're going to try to run through here very quickly, but I think you'll get the idea. We're going to start at Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light and there was light. What is God's agent? What is the means of creation in this verse? He said, all right, God said. Now, we know that John says that God is a spirit. Okay, does a spirit have vocal cords? This is probably anthropomorphic. Our anthropomorphism is describing the parts of a man to God just so we can grasp what's being talked about. All right? Now, compare this to the psalm, psalm 33, 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His nostril, all their hosts. Here, the word of Yahweh is said to be the creator of the heavens. This is what John says. In verse 3, all things came into being through Him, through the Word. And apart from Him, the Word, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Word of Yahweh is the Creator. After these things, the Word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now here... The word of Yahweh comes to Abram in a vision. In other words, it's visible. He sees it. The word vision here is mahazi, which comes from the root haze, which means to gaze at. So Abram is looking. He sees something, a manifestation. It's the word of Yahweh. Let's look at Genesis 15. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars. So here we have the word of Yahweh saying, talking to Abram. And he took him outside. The word is a person. All right? It's a person who is the word of Yahweh who takes Abraham. There's someone there. He's someone he's looking at. He touches, you know, they sat down and ate with the word. Abram did. All right. So you got to get this. There's there's someone there touching, talking, you know, all the experiences that we experience. First Samuel three, one. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh before Eli and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Now visions are something you see and it here says the word of Yahweh was rare. They didn't see a lot of manifestations of Yahweh. 1 Samuel 3.10. Then Yahweh came and stood and called out his other times. Samuel, Samuel. So here Yahweh is standing. He is embodied. He's standing there before him. 1 Samuel 3.19. Thus Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him. So this manifestation is, is with him. 321 says, And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh. Because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. So Yahweh reveals himself by the word of Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh reveals by the word of Yahweh. Look at Jeremiah 1, 1 and 2. Now the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So here, Yahweh came. The word of Yahweh comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, 4. Now, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, He's talking to Jeremiah. Notice verse 6. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. Now, the word of Yahweh here is different from Adonai Yahweh, but Yahweh and the word of Yahweh are used interchangeably. So, there's something different, but they're used interchangeably. Now, notice verse 9. Jeremiah 1.9 Then Yahweh stretched out His hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me. So here we see Yahweh stretching out His hand. Again, God is a spirit. Does He have hands? Spirit (laughs) Spirit hands. This is the word of Yahweh. And listen, the word of Yahweh is the visible manifestation of Yahweh. Now, let's look at some more verses and give us the idea of two Yahweh's. Because this is what you see throughout the Scripture. You see two different Yahweh's. Genesis 19, 24. Then Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. What? Yahweh reigned fire from Yahweh. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Well, not if you understand there's two Yahweh's. One is the manifestation, one is the visible manifestation. Now, chapter 31, Jacob is talking, and he says this, Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up now your eyes, and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and molted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Now, notice here that the angel of God, Elohim, the angel of Elohim says, I'm the God of Bethel. You know what Bethel means? El. El means God. Beth is house. Beth. House of God. All right? So here the angel is called God. How can that be? All right, well, let's go on. Exodus 3.1. Now, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. So here we've got the angel of Yahweh in this bush. You're all familiar with the story of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire. When Yahweh saw that, he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So here we have the angel of Yahweh appeared to him. And then Yahweh said, so there's more than one being in this bush. Now, listen, the rabbis noticed this. They knew the text. They had it memorized and they saw these and they recognized it. And they saw that there were two Yahweh's in the text. This is the Jewish Godhead. The Jews understood and they taught two powers in heaven. They taught this until the second century A.D. What happened in the second century? Christianity. Yeshua showed up and they're like, "Mm, we got two powers. But now they're saying this is the other power. And they just had a problem with that. So the Hebrew scriptures taught a second Yahweh. The Hebrew faith had a binatarian Godhead. Notice Exodus 33, 12 and 14. Then Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my eyes. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, Let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. Here, Yahweh tells Moses, My presence is going to go with you. So they experienced the presence of Yahweh. It wasn't just some, you know, spirit floating around or something. They experienced the presence of Yahweh. Isaiah 30, 27, behold, the name of Yahweh comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. Here it says the name of Yahweh is coming and doing things. Now, when we think of the name of Yahweh, what do we think of? Yahweh, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. All right, he's not talking about here about four letters did something. Okay, the name of Yahweh is a personification of God. Isaiah 60, verse 9. Surely the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold, with them. For the name of Yahweh your God, and for the Holy One of Israel. This is a Hebrew parallelism. Alright, you have the name of Yahweh your God, and you have the Holy One of Israel. Of Israel. They're one in the same. So here the name is equated. With Yahweh. Psalm 20 verse 1. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob. Set you securely on high. So here the name is bringing protection. So is it just. yod He and that kind of protects you. No he's talking about a manifestation. Of the Godhead. Psalm 20 verse 7. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh, our God. Again, it's not the letters they're boasting in. They're protected by the name. Psalm 44, 5. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. They're not out there yelling Yahweh. The name is an entity. Look at Exodus 23, 20 through 21. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I prepared. Now be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Listen to this angel. Do not rebel towards him for he will not pardon your transgressions. What? So here we have an angel pardoning transgressions. Now watch, he says, since my name is in him. Who can pardon transgressions but God? And what does he mean? My name is in him. What's that mean? The four letters were in the angel somehow. Set the Yod The Vav Hey. Well, the Hebrew word name is Shem, and oftentimes the Jew would say the Hashem, the name. All right. Well, Shem comes from Neshama, and we see that used in Genesis two seven. Then Yahweh Elohim formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Here, breath is Neshama. So in the Hebrew mind, Hebrew thinking, your Shem is your breath. In Hebraic, that means character. Your breath is your character. It's what makes you you. It makes you different from everybody else. You can replace the word name in Hebrew with the idea of character. All right, character. In Hebraic thought, a name is not merely an arbitrary designation of random combination of letters, alright? The name conveys the nature or essence of the thing named. It represents the history and reputation of that being named. In English, we often refer to a person's reputation as his good name. You ever heard of that? You don't hear that much anymore, but you used to say that. Well, that's his good name, meaning not that well, Bob is a wonderful name or anything. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's got character. His name is his character. Well, the Hebrew concept of name is very similar to that. Exodus 23, 21, and 22 here, when he says, My name is in him, in the angel, he is saying, My character, my essence, is in the angel. The essence of God is in this angel. Leviticus 11, 4, 5. Watch this. For I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. We understand that, right? God redeemed the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Well, this verse brings in some trouble here. Now, the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt to lead you into the land. Okay, wait a minute. Is it the angel? Or is it Yahweh? Who delivered them from Egypt? Yes. Yes. But now, here's where it gets really interesting, okay? Because when we get to the New Testament, these New Testament writers really define this for us. And we go to Jude, and Jude says this. Now, he's reminding his readers, "I, I desire to remind you that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, who is the Lord here? Who saved the people out of Egypt and then destroyed unbelievers? Well, we saw that it was Yahweh, and we saw that it was the angel of Yahweh. So who is it here? Well, notice the ESV, which makes this very clear. The ESV says, Now I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Boy, that makes it clear, okay? The Lord... And we understand that. They're talking about the Lord in Jude 1.5. But the, the ESV says it's Jesus. Now, the New English Translation notes say this. The reading Iesus, Jesus, is deemed too hard by several scholars, since it involved the notion of Jesus acting in the early history of the nation Israel. However... Not only does this reading enjoy the strongest support from a variety of early witnesses, but the plethora of variants demonstrates that scribes were uncomfortable with it. See, the scribes didn't like that. What? Jesus did it? We can't, we can't have that. We can't have him back in that book. All right? He says, For they seem to exchange Kyrios, Lord, or Theos, God, for Iesus. Now, he says, though P72, which is a manuscript, has the intriguing reading Theos Christos, God, Christ for Iesus, as difficult as the reading Iesus is in light of Jude 1.4 and in light of the progress of Revelation, Jude being one of the last books in the New Testament to be composed, he said it is wholly appropriate. So they say the best manuscripts of this says Iesus. All right which is the Greek translation of Yeshua. So we have the angel of Yahweh. We have Yahweh. And then we have Yeshua. The scriptures say all of them did. Okay. So which one was it? Yes. Okay. You're starting to get the connection, I hope. Okay. It was Yeshua who delivered. He was the angel of Yahweh. Listen. Yeshua is the angel of Yahweh, who is the, in essence, Yahweh. He is the second Yahweh that you see all through the Tanakh. Now, another clue to the meaning of the word Logos in John's prologue comes from the wisdom literature of the Tanakh. Books like Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes... And also the wisdom literature of the intertestamental period. Books like Ecclesiasticus and the wisdom of Solomon, Syriac. This wisdom literature often personified wisdom. You ever read that through Proverbs and wisdom seems to be personified. It's not just some thought. It's a a person. Now in the Greek mind, wisdom is thought. But in the Hebrew, it's personified. Wisdom is spoken of as a person who is present with God in the beginning of creation. Providing light and life for the world. Let's look at Proverbs here just to get this concept. He says, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of His ways. Very beginning, wisdom was there. This is talking about wisdom. Before His works of old, from everlasting, I was established. From the beginning of the earliest times of the earth, when there was no depths, I brought forth when there was no springs abounding With water, So he's from everlasting. He was there from the very beginning. This wisdom was. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above. That's Hebrew cosmology. The sky is a solid dome. When the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set for the seas its boundaries so that the waters would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him as a master workman. So wisdom is there from creation. Wisdom is a a co-creator. He says, I was daily His delight rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having My delight in the sons of men. So the agent of creation in this text is wisdom. Wisdom is cast as a co-creator. now here's what's interesting. you start reading commentaries that bring out the fact that the word wisdom here is feminine, okay And so you hear all kinds of people teaching about mother God you know and this feminine deity and all this stuff, which is just a bunch of nonsense okay they don't understand the Hebrew language at all. It is feminine here, but that feminine use here has nothing to do with biology, okay? It's nothing at all to do with biology. So it's not taking a woman, but he is using they do use the feminine here. all right? Wisdom is seen in these texts as almost eternally preexistent with God. Now the intertestamental books, "The Wisdom of Solomon," actually identified the wisdom of God and the Word of God. He says, "O God, my fathers and Lord of mercy." who has made all things with thy word and ordained man through thy wisdom that he should have dominion over the creatures which thou hast made and order the world according to equity and righteousness. So he made all things and he made them with the word. And he's talking again, he's talking about wisdom here. And execute judgment with an upright heart and give me wisdom that sitteth by thy throne. Now notice that wisdom is sitting by God on the throne. Alright? And reject me not from among thy children. Now, let's look at the praise of wisdom in Syriac. Alright, he says, Wisdom praises herself and tells her glory. Again, then we see the feminine there. Alright? So, whoever this wisdom is, it's praising herself. Oh, well, why would it be doing that? In the midst of her people, watch verse 2 In the assembly of the Most High. What's that talking about? The divine council. Alright? In the divine council, wisdom is praising herself. Well, that sounds a little arrogant unless wisdom is Yahweh. Okay? She opens her mouth and in the presence of his host, she tells of her glory. I came forth from the mountain of the most high and covered the earth like a mist. I dwelt in the highest heavens and my throne was in a pillar of cloud. Get a picture now of what's going on here. So, for the Jews in John's time, the phrase Word of God would have pointed to the personified wisdom of God, who was co eternal, who coexisted with God, and was God's active co-worker in the creation. Now, we saw in Proverbs 8 and from the Apocryphal literature that wisdom is a co creator. As I said earlier, the Jews saw and taught. Two powers in heaven, two Yahwehs, but things changed when Christianity showed up. To the Jews after Christianity, this is a really interesting switch. Okay, they they saw these two powers. They taught it in Middle Judaism, all right. But once Christianity shows up, things really switched. And now wisdom is what to a Jew, Torah. Wisdom is now Torah. Everything's attributed to Torah. But the New Testament writers, and you see this in the New Testament, they're battling this whole idea. They taught that righteousness comes from Christ, not Torah. Let's compare two passages. These two passages, the context is exactly the same. You take your I, I just I cut this down to fit on the screen because I want you to see things, all right, on the screen before your eyes. You've got to go back and read the whole context here. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles. Some they will kill and some they will persecute. All right. Notice here it's wisdom talking. Wisdom says this. Now, look at what Matthew says in Matthew twenty-three, thirty-four. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets. Who's talking here? Yeshua is. And wise men and scribes, and them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge. So the same exact context. Here they are both together. The wisdom of God said, I will send you prophets. Yeshua says, therefore, I am sending you prophets. They're parallel texts. Their context is the same. But Matthew says, Yeshua is the one who's speaking. He says, I'm sending you. So in one passage, wisdom is speaking, and the other, Yeshua, because Yeshua is the wisdom of God. He is the co-creator. And people want to question the deity of Christ. Wisdom, people, is eternal. Why is that? Because God can't be God without wisdom. There can't be a time when God doesn't have wisdom. Listen, the Trinity is not an invention of Christians. It's really not. It was known in Middle Judaism. The Israelites said the second power is Yahweh's essence manifested in a different form. You could just say in a form because Yahweh is invisible. You don't see Yahweh, but you see his manifestation in the second person. And this is the basis of Binitarianism in Judaism in their thoughts. And then later, the Spirit of God is spoken of in the same way. In Isaiah 63, which is recounting Israel's exodus, talking about Israel's exodus, here's what Isaiah says. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great greatness toward the house of Israel, which He has granted them according to His compassion, and according to the abundances of His loving kindness. For He said, Surely they will be My people, Sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. Now, who's the savior here? Yahweh, right? He's the savior. The text is speaking of Yahweh. It calls Yahweh the savior. Let's go on in the text. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Now, who's the savior? It's the angel. Who saved them? Well, wait a minute. Just a minute ago he said it was Yahweh, and now it's the angel. I you hope you're catching on. This is Yeshua. This is the second Yahweh. But let's go on in the text. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of the flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in their midst? So here the Spirit is in the midst, delivering them, taking care of them. All right? 63, verse 14. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. He is their Savior. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So here in Isaiah, we see Trinitarianism. In the Hebrew Bible. As I said, Christians didn't make this up. You got Yahweh, you got the angel of his presence, and you got the spirit of Yahweh all together. Every Jew, here's the problem with this, okay? You think of binitarianism or Trinitarianism, and you think, wait a minute, the Jews were monotheistic, okay? That was a big deal to the Jews, right? First verse of scripture any Jew ever memorized was what? The Shema of Israel. What was it? Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Alright, that would be the first Scripture any Jew would memorize. That was the first thing they would say when they got up in the morning. That was the prayer they would begin. Hear O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Now, holding to monotheism, God is one. How could they be Binitarian or Trinitarian? Well, listen, the Shema says Yahweh is one. And they see Yahweh... The angel of Yahweh, the spirit of Yahweh, as one essence. There were one God. There's not three gods. There is one God and they worship the one true God. Trinitarian theology, which Brain Bible Church espouses as Orthodox Christianity, states that the term Lord is a term that applies to the three persons of the Trinity. Just like the term God. You know, What I'm saying is we really shouldn't speak of God, the Son, and the Spirit. What do we do? We just ascribe deity to the God, but what about the other two? All right? What we should do is say God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're all equal. Yahweh the Son, Yahweh the Spirit, Yahweh the Father. All three are Yahweh. There's only one God and He is Yahweh. But there are three persons that make up this divine Godhead. I know it's hard to grasp, okay? I'm just showing you what the Scriptures say, alright? There's the presence of Yahweh, there's the name of Yahweh, there's the angel of Yahweh, there's the wisdom of Yahweh, and there's Yahweh. And then we got the Spirit. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, he's talking about the second Yahweh seen all through the Tanakh. This wasn't something new. His readers would have realized that the second power was Yeshua and Yeshua is Yahweh in human flesh. Now that's significant, people. We've got to grasp that. We're going to get to that when we get to verse 14 if we ever get there, okay? The Word, the same Word he's talking about, was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is Yahweh. This is God walking with man. You know, one of the greatest controversies of the early church gathered around the significance of this opening verse here in John. There was a man named Arius. Any of you familiar with Arius? Ever heard of Arius? Okay, Jeff, heard of him. He was one of the Presbyters of Alexandria in Egypt. He had a superior by the name of Alexander. And they engaged in a lot of controversy over the nature of the Son of God. Arius taught that the Lord Yeshua did not possess... Eternality of being. So basically, Arius taught Yeshua was created. Eternity was not one of the qualities of Yeshua. He taught that the Son had a beginning. Now, he taught he was the greatest of the creatures of God, and he was responsible immediately for the creation of all the other creatures. But he himself had a beginning, so he denied the eternity of the Son. Surprisingly, Arius obtained a lot of followers, but there came a conflict from Alexander and others, and finally at the Council of Nicaea, the Arian doctrine was denounced. See, a lot of, a lot of people will say, well, the deity of Christ was never even thought of until the Council of Nicaea. Now, that's ridiculous. 1,200 years before the Council of Nicaea, the, the Hebrew Scriptures are talking about this second Yahweh, all right? But even though Nicaea denounced this, that really didn't put an end to Arius' teaching. He continued to have a really big influence. Matter of fact, Arian Christology actually became predominant for a time. But there's another man who succeeded Alexander, um, whose name was Athanasius. And he's one of the heroes of the Christian church. And finally, at the Council of Constantinople, the doctrine of Nicaea was affirmed again. Through the polemics and through the strength and character of Athanasius and others. So Arius' doctrine, and his doctrine basically stated this. There was a time when he was not. That was Arius' doctrine. There was a time when he was not. That doctrine was refuted and the Christian church came solidly to stand behind the fact that there was not a time when Yeshua did not exist. So as John is telling us, he did not become the Word. He was not made. He was, He possessed the same essential nature as the Father. And those councils affirmed the fact, homoousia, or of the same essence. They're the same. Meaning that Yeshua was the same essence as the Father. Same essence of the Spirit. They declared the deity of Yeshua the Christ. Now today, you're not going to hear too many people you know, promoting Arian is his philosophy, but, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses deny the eternality of the Son, and so in a sense, they are like Arian in their Christology. They deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of the Son of God. No, He wasn't God. Okay? We'll get to this as we move through this verse here. Mormons also deny the deity of the Son of God. They speak of Him as the Son of God, but deny His eternity. They deny the Christian doctrine of the Trinity also. All right, they're saying no, no. These guys, you know, they're all confused about this. Now, let me say something. I don't say this to be mean, but I think anybody who denies the deity of Christ or denies the Trinity is not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. They're just not. They don't understand. You know, Yeshua, all all the stuff he says. You know, he, can, he says, I'm the I Am. Over, he's doing all these things to connect himself with Yahweh. And people say, oh, I don't think he has deity. Zacchaeus is up in a tree and he tells kids, I've come to seek and save the lost. Whoa, that's what Yahweh said in Ezekiel. How come Yeshua is saying it? Because he's Yahweh. Like I said, it's everywhere if you just get familiar with the Scriptures. It's everywhere. Now listen, let's... Five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh is called the Cloud Rider. Now what's really interesting, this is a, the, the new, the writers, the Hebrew writers use this title as basically an attack on Baal. Because Baal, the Canaanite storm god, was titled the Cloud Rider. And so when the writers of the scriptures say Yahweh's the Cloud Rider, they're saying, listen, Baal's nothing. Okay, Yahweh, he's the supreme God. He's riding the cloud. So five times in scripture, we hear that title and it's always connected with Yahweh, except for one time. You know where that one time is? It's not connected with Yahweh. Anybody know? Daniel chapter seven. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. So here's someone coming on the clouds like the son of man. He was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the cloud rider, the son of man, was given dominion. Again, people, you want to argue about the deity of Christ? Okay. He is given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, men, Of every might, of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here the rider on the cloud is not Yahweh. It's the son of man. Listen, a human. That's the whole idea of title son of man. He is human. So dominion is given to the son of man, the second cloud rider. Now let's go to Matthew. Matthew 26, 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Yeshua kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, then Yeshua answers the high priest. He said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here Yeshua quotes Daniel 7.13 that we just looked at. He said that the high priest would see him, Yeshua, coming on clouds. Yeshua is saying here to the high priest, I'm Yahweh. What's the high priest's response? Okay, he tears his clothes. Then the high priest tore his robe. He said, he's blasphemed. What further do we need of witnesses? Behold, you've heard the blasphemy. He said he's blas- is blasphemed because he said he is the cloud rider and the high priest understood that only Yahweh rode the clouds. He knew Yeshua standing there claiming to be Yahweh. Now, John Elazar. In his prologue, introduce, introduces a concept that really dominates this entire gospel. That God is a self-revealing God. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who makes Himself known to us. He is not a distant, remote, as the deists would portray Him. He's a God who comes and speak to us, speaks to us. He is the eternal Word. And John is about to teach us, Yeshua the Christ, the Word, reveals God to us. Listen, people, when we see Yeshua in the pages of Scripture, we see Yahweh. When we know Yeshua of the Bible, we know Yahweh. Yeshua is God saying, here I am. This is who I am. Believe in me. And I give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. I'm ecstatic. I'm excited, Lord. The word of God just seems so clear to me. The angel of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh. The name of Yahweh. The wisdom of Yahweh. You have revealed Your Son all through the Tanakh. And we miss it. Open our eyes, Father. Give us an understanding heart. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Thank You, Father. I'm so excited, Lord, about this Gospel that we are going to have You revealed to us clearly, openly. Thank You, Father. May we see You, Lord, in all Your glory. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Jeff?
1: i not a question. I'm going too much. But just this past week or two, um, I've been reading some of that pseudofigurical stuff. And notice in the book of Adam and Eve that the term the Word of God is used. And I suppose this book was written two up to 200 years before Christ. It was oral and written down 200 years before him. But obviously, they say it does appear that there was some additions to it because they do refer to things that seem to be pre- post-Christian, like him actually dying in three days. All the stuff that's, anyway, would be very prophetic. But anyway, the Word of God is, is, is used over and over and over. It's the way that God did things. So God is talking to me, and he sent the Word of God to help Adam. And he sent the Word of God to raise Adam when he did this, or he picked him up off the dirt. It's the most common thing I saw in there was the Word of God was like that part of God That did that. Exactly. And that's... It was that exact term, the Word of God, capital W, right? the Word of God. It appeared so much in
0: that book. All right, Jeff says, you know, this appears a lot in the pseudepigrapha. It appears a lot in the Tanakh. But here's the thing we have to understand, okay? There's a lot of controversy over Christians about the pseudepigrapha work. You know, why, you know, were were they that important? Listen, and the time that the Gospel of John was written, the Hebrew Scriptures weren't you know, all in one canon. They didn't have, the you know, here's the Tanakh, okay? They had a lot of different scriptures, but they also used the Pseudepigrapha. They were very important to New Testament Christians. They were familiar with this. So as as Jeff just quoted about the book of Adam and Eve, they're familiar with this book. And over and over they read the Word of God. The Word of God is God. So when Yeshua shows up and says who He is, they're like, it's the second person. It's the second power. It is the second Yahweh. And they recognized who he was. And these Jews who were monotheistic had no problem. Because it wasn't adding to their God. And see, that's what got the Romans were so confused. Wait a minute, you have a problem you won't worship our deities? Well, you Christians have two deities too. You've got Yahweh and you've got Yeshua. And then no, no, we don't have two deities. we got one Yahweh. Whew, I'm excited. Exciting stuff. There's so much for us to learn, people. Man, so much. Uh, I guess basically, you know, what I'm trying to say is, as you read your Bible, you're going to see God all through it. Not just, you know, Yahweh, you see Yahweh manifest. A physical... That's the thing I want you to get in your head, okay? Abraham sat down and ate with two angels and Yahweh. Sat down and physically touched, heard talking to Jacob wrestled with God. Physically. Confrontation. This is, this is mind blowing people, you know. Betty, how are you, Betty? Haven't heard from you for a while. Hope things are good in Youngstown, Ohio. She says, I do believe that the word is Jesus. And I believe you said that only the son spoke. But if God the Father did not speak, only God the Son spoke, then who spoke at the transfiguration? Alright, good question, Betty. I appreciate that. God did speak, okay, but the manifestation of Yahweh was always the second person. He was the manifestation. God did speak. And God spoke. Yahweh the Father spoke from heaven at the transfiguration. And we'll see this in other places, you know, where we see the Trinity so clearly. We see the Spirit there. We see the Son there. We see the Father's voice, the Beth Kol coming out of heaven, as the Jews call it, He's speaking. So the Father, I'm sorry, I'm glad that you gave me an opportunity to clear that up. Yahweh does speak. All right, now you say, well, how does He speak? Because He doesn't have vocal cords. Well, I don't know, okay? But we see the voice of the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Spirit together in different texts in the Scriptures. And we'll see that. But here's what you got to understand. Whenever there is a, an action taking place, a manifestation taking place, it's the Son who is the Yahweh in action doing things.